Greetings to you all, uh, those of you who usually see me in person in the Joburg Church and also in the Centurion Church. I'm really sorry that I can't be with you. We're away at the moment, but I trust that you'll catch the heart of this message. Those of you who typically watch online, God bless you. This is normal for you, isn't it? I trust that God is going to keep ministering to us in this particular area of uncommon prayers. And I trust that God will impart revelation to you concerning praying powerful prayers that aren't usually prayed. And so this week we'll continue to look at some uncommon prayers. We will start off by examining the prayer of vows, the prayer of vows. You know, vows were made in both the Old Testament and also in the New Testament. And some were made foolishly and some are unbiblical. Uh, now, because of the prevalence of vows in Scripture, it's so important for us to actually understand the power that they can have and to recognize them as a type of prayer. I believe vows are a type of prayer because when we would make these vows before God, when people would do that, the ancients, the moderns, uh, that was a type of prayer. It's also crucial that we are aware of the consequences of breaking such vows and at the same time the blessing that goes with fulfilling those vows. And then from there we will explore another uncommon prayer and um, I'm calling it meditative prayer. Now biblical meditation is very different to uh, Eastern meditation. And whilst meditation in and of itself is not prayer per se, Prayers that stem from a meditative heart tend to be extremely powerful. And I believe it's something that needs to be taught in the body of Christ. How do you meditate biblically, biblical meditation? And what are the type of prayers that come out of that? Believers who know how to effectively pray in this manner actually end up demonstrating a maturity in engaging in heaven. So let's start with the prayer of vows. And this is the fifth uncommon prayer that I'm looking at with you, the prayer of vows. It's been noted uh, by a guy called Barnes that a vow is a solemn promise made to God respecting anything. It's a solemn promise that's made to God in respect of anything. Now, this is interesting for me because God is a covenantal God. God is a God who makes promises to his children and then he keeps his promises, doesn't he? And so surely God would want us to be like him with regards to that. And I believe that it, it demonstrates um, God's nature in us when we can be like him with regards to making promises and then keeping them. And there's such blessing in keeping the promises that we make to God. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 10 through to 11, it's talking about Hannah. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, a solemn promise, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. All right. So here's a mother praying, asking God for something. Right. And she's saying, God, if you give me this, this is my promise to you. And she fulfills that promise. And we can all agree that Samuel became such a great blessing to the nation of Israel. In Acts chapter 8, verse 18, I want to show you vows in the New Testament. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at uh, Synchrony because of a vow he had taken. Now, there are debates out there. Is it talking about Paul? Is it talking about Aquila? What's going on here? And for various reasons, it seems to be talking about Paul because it continues to talk about Paul afterwards. Okay, so we see that New Testament believers would sometimes take a vow to do something symbolic as a sign of this. They would also do something symbolic as a sign of this. Right? In Benson's commentary, it says, uh, Salmasius has justly observed it could not be a vow of Nazariteship. So 
um, so they would sometimes take the vows that Nazarites would take, all right? And um, sometimes this was just for a brief period. Some vows were taken for a brief season and some were for a lifetime. But the belief is that it wasn't one for Nazarite ship, right? Um, for then the hair must have been burned in the temple. That's what would happen when you would um, finish that particular vow or fulfill that vow. You'd have to go to the temple, right? Under the cauldron in which the peace offerings were boiled. And remember, the Nazarites wouldn't cut their hair like uh, Samson, for example, all right? In Numbers 6, verse 18, it was the custom, it seems, on the accomplishment of vows for persons to, to shave their heads, right? And so Acts 21, 30, 23 to 24 um, talks about this also. So when a vow is taken, it's important to do so from a place of faith, right? From a place of peace, from a place of joy, as opposed to subconsciously taking a vow stemming from resentment, you know? And this is what we call a bitter root judgment. Very often, subconsciously, we take vows, right? Uh, so, for example, you'll hear people saying things like, oh, I've been so hurt by men in my life. All men are dogs. I don't need a man in my life. I'll never get married, right? That's an inner vow that's happening subconsciously, and it's stemming from a bitter root judgment. And that's something to be careful of right? Uh, we also find that some people will make vows unconsciously or subconsciously where they might say, I'll never do business with those types of people again, okay? That's also a vow being made subconsciously. Be careful of those types of vows, especially made in bitterness, right? And in judgment of a certain group of people because there'll be times when you're now praying for breakthrough and then someone from that particular group comes to you, but somehow you can't receive them right? They come to you and they're key to your breakthrough, but you can't receive them. So this is the counterfeit of godly vows that are based on thanksgiving, based on faith, based on consecration, all right? Bitter root judgments tend to stem from wounds, they tend to stem from pride, and they stem, they stem from self-protection, okay? It's often self-protective behavior. So I've shown you so far that Hannah made a vow not even concerning herself, but concerning her son, right? And committed that son to the Lord when God had given her the particular breakthrough. And it almost seems like there's a side of God where he knows, you know what, I trust this person. And I believe that this person will follow through with this particular vow. So let me bless them with that particular thing. I believe that sometimes that's how God also sees it. Then I showed you vows in the New Testament where we see that uh, Paul the Apostle actually made a vow. And we don't know what the context was, but we see that he would practice that kind of thing, right? It might not have been a lifetime vow. It might have been a vow for a certain period of time, all right? And then I've also highlighted to you that it's important that vows stem from a place of consecration, a place of brokenness before God, not self-righteousness, not self-protective behavior, right? And not from a bitter root judgment. Now, when people get married, they exchange vows before God, right? This is a type of prayer of vows, isn't it? It's a commitment that you are making. It's a promise that you're making before God. A lot of songs that we sing are actually a declaration of vows to the Lord. And that's why we must be careful when we sing those particular songs to follow through on the vow that we're actually making. We need to be conscious of what we're singing. A lot of our worship songs are actually prayers of consecration and prayers of vows. And many vows are actually made in the context of establishing covenant with God. And I believe that God wants us to be covenantal people in the same way that he's a covenantal God. Covenant is just a big word for an agreement, an agreement. So there are covenants that we make with God. And in the context of that covenant, we make promises saying, this is my part of this covenant and this is what I will do, right? Other vows are purity vows or vows of some form of abstinence, right? And young people today, Christian people, godly people, are making chastity vows, right? And they'll wear a purity ring as a reminder of such vows that they've actually taken. And I believe that that's also important. You see, I remember in my high school uh, days, uh, last couple of months of high school, a number of us had decided to go to a particular university uh, here in South Africa, 
And I remember having a conversation with a couple of friends of mine and we were talking about how we intend to keep ourselves pure sexually throughout our university days. And I remember one particular uh, friend basically saying, yeah, but guys, you never know what can happen. Eh? You never know. And he sounded very humble the way he was saying it. But lo and behold, a couple of months into his time at university, um, he lost that particular purity, right? That commitment that some of us had made, other people had made. Sometimes we fall into sin because we didn't make a commitment or a promise not to do so, right? We wanted to keep our options open. I encourage you young people, right? Don't be afraid of making promises to God and make sure you follow through on them, right? It will make it more difficult for you to fall into the trap and the snare of the enemy, right? And sometimes it's good to then have something symbolic for that particular vow that you've made, Right? It could be a ring that you put maybe into, uh, you know, onto, onto the one hand. That's not necessarily your marriage, um, your marriage hand. So think through that. But there are chastity vows uh, that people are making today as a reminder of, um, of their commitment to God and their commitment to their future spouse. This is so powerful because it's so easy to betray your future spouse before you've even met them. Right? Um, these purity vows can also be powerful as a commitment to walk according to a particular standard in specific aspects of your life, right? And the, the vow that you take, it's actually a way of pre-deciding how you're going to live, right? And remember, I keep saying to you that discipline is following through with what you've pre-decided is best for you to do despite your emotional state at the time. So for example, you can make a covenant with your eyes like Job did, right? In Job 31 verse 1, it says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman, right? Now, what's the nature of that covenant? There's a vow. There's a vow. There's a vow that you, that you take. I've made a promise to myself. So for example, if there's a TV program and there's a scene that's uh, not appropriate, I've made a covenant with my eyes. There's certain things I've chosen not to look at, right? That's a type of vow, right? So if it's a, quite a decent movie and I need to fast forward that section, well, it gets fast forwarded. My wife is usually good at that skill, you know, fast forward. You know, I just look away, right? Sometimes we, we think we're these strong Christians and we're mature adults and it's fine. This happens in life. Let's just look at it. No, you make a covenant with your eyes. And Job said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. You see, there's the look because you're noticing people around you. So you can't avoid looking at someone. But what's dangerous is the second look, the lingering eye. All right. And part of such Covenant making involves a prayer of vows. Some vows are actually linked to specific callings or commissioning. That Lord, as you're now releasing me into this particular thing, this is my prayer of devotion to you. This is my promise to you. Even as we are believing God for our new property, for the land, one of the things for our church, one of the things I've been praying is that commitment saying, Lord, it will be a house of prayer for all nations. Lord, I make this promise to you that we will uh, prioritize prayer. Okay, we won't lose that focus. We won't lose um, that uh, that, that focus based on what you've told us, you've called us to. We'll make sure that we do that, okay? And then there's the blessing of God each time you do it, each time you fulfill it. I'm going to show you in scripture that when you're fulfilling your vows, it's worship unto God. It's worship unto God. Now, uh, sometimes one is only released from a vow upon death of the other party. Right? especially when it's a covenant with that person. For example, in marriage, that's why we say, till death do us part. Now, I know the exceptions to that, um, but that's the, that's the Bible pattern, isn't it? Right? And whilst in other cases, vows are seasonal. And I want to say that there are times when people can be released from a vow that they've made foolishly. It's important to understand that. In scripture, you would see how a father would have that authority to release their child, to release their daughter, if the daughter had made a vow foolishly. So it's so important to be able to actually pray the prayer of repentance and confession when you've made a foolish vow. For example, there are times when you might have promised that, Lord, you know what? If you give me this business breakthrough, I'm going to give you X percentage 
of all my profits, okay? And you make it an enthusiasm, right? But there are times when you actually have to be released from that vow because you see that, wait a minute, the business didn't take off as you had imagined. And maybe, you know what, you actually need some of that money to reinvest it into the business and so on. There are times you need to actually go before, whether it go before your pastor or whoever you had made that commitment to and actually say, please, I need to humble myself. Can I be released from this? Let me rather retract from it. And this is what I now commit to do. There's grace when it comes to these particular things. There are also times when people were released from certain vows because that vow had been made in the flesh and they were vowing to do something that is ungodly. And you see it in scripture, and I'll talk about it a bit later on. You'll see Saul, uh, King Saul, making a certain vow that would have resulted in him killing his own son, right? Um, which was not a godly thing to do. So there are vows that are sometimes made in foolishness that people need to be released from. Um, In Barnes' notes on the Bible, he goes on to say, the most remarkable vow among the Jews was that of the Nazarite, by which a man made a solemn promise to God to abstain from wine and from all intoxicating liquors, to let the the, the hair grow, not to enter any house polluted by having a dead body in it, or to attend any funeral. This vow generally lasted eight days, sometimes a month, sometimes during a definite period fixed by themselves, and sometimes during their whole lives. Okay? When the vow expired, the priest made an offering of a he lamb for a burnt offering, a she lamb for an expiratory sacrifice, and a ram for a peace offering. Right? The priest then, or some other person, shaved the head of the Nazarite at the door of the tabernacle and burnt the hair on the fire of the altar. Those who made the vow out of, uh, outside of Palestine and uh, who could not come to the temple when the vow was expired contented themselves, contented themselves with observing the abstinence required by the law and cutting off the hair where they were. Okay, so that was quite a vow that people made, but don't think that it was a lifetime vow for everyone. You know, we used to examples of John the Baptist or we hear about Samson and so on. But in actual fact, sometimes these vows were just made for a period of time. And that's something that you can do and something that's quite doable, you know, where you basically say, you know what, this is a promise I'm making to God for these next three months. This is my commitment, you know, and sometimes it actually helps you to build muscle in that particular area um, that you're working on in your life. Now, Jesus places a big qualifier on the concept of vows. And more accurately, I should actually be saying on the concept of oaths, because it's not exactly the same thing, right? In Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 to 37, Jesus says, Again you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair, white or black. All you need to to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And this is so important to understand what Jesus was really addressing here. Tom Wright uh, states, Some Christians have taken Matthew 5, 33 to 37, to teach that we must not, under any circumstances, utter an oath or vow. So they refuse to take an oath in the court of law, for example. Right? In a marriage ceremony, they'll say, "Mm -mm, I can't take an oath. Okay, So then I don't know what they do in terms of commitment to their spouse. right? Or in any other situation. Is that our Lord's point here? To create a new prohibition that didn't exist under the law of Moses and thereby to overcome men's tendency to be untruthful. Part of me would love for it to be that simple, but I don't think it is. Oaths were used to resolve disputes, to seal agreements or covenants. You know, so you'll see Abraham doing that, for example, or simply to affirm the truthfulness of important declarations. The oaths exchanged between Abraham and Abimelech at Beersheba in Genesis 21 served both to end a dispute and to establish a covenant. 
They were used to resolve a dispute over ownership of certain wells and to seal a covenant to perpetuate the agreement about the wells. And you see that in Genesis 21, 22 to 34, if you want to study it. I don't believe Jesus' point in Matthew 5 is that oaths are evil or that an oath uh, can never be legitimate. I believe his point is that the swearing of oaths as practiced by the scribes and Pharisees was evil in its entirety because they deliberately swore their oaths by everything except God in a foolish effort to sidestep their accountability to God. So what was happening back in, in those days is people were not truthful. Essentially, they were not truthful. And so, you know, when people say things like, I swear by my mother's life, I cross my heart to hope to die, right? I swear by the gold in the temple. That's why elsewhere he addresses that issue saying, wait a minute, which is greater, the gold or the temple that it's actually in, right? He was basically saying, guys, even when you just say, yes, I will do this. Yes, I promise to do this without even an oath, etc. You're still accountable to God. So by adding all these other things and so on, what are you doing? Sometimes by some of the things we say, we're actually ending up invoking judgment on ourselves because these people would try and show people that I am telling the truth. Don't think I'm a liar like you, you thought I was and all the other lies I've said in my whole life. If I'm lying about this, then this will happen to me and that will happen to me and that will happen to me. And Jesus is basically saying, guys, stop doing that. Stop doing that. All right. Just let your yes be yes. Right? And your no be no. So uh, the oaths that were actually made in ancient times were actually made in God's name, reinforcing that God was the only God. God was the only God. And in Matthew 5, Jesus is actually addressing a practice that had become prevalent in his times. This is where people were generally untruthful and would make oaths that you could call evasive oaths, right? Swearing by something lesser than God to try to validate their words. They didn't realize that God is a witness of all things anyway. And this warning is also reinforced by James, by the way. In James 5 verse 12, he says, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Otherwise, you'll be condemned. So make a commitment to God, but you don't need to swear by this, swear by that, etc., now, vows assist you when making covenants with God. They actually help you when you're making a covenant with God. If you look at Judges chapter 11, verses 29 through to 40, it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. Okay, so it was a time of war and Jephthah was, um, was a judge. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Okay, not always a wise thing to do. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Ariel to the vicinity of Minith, as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Amnon, Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was an only child, except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I'm devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. Firstly, you see here his commitment to a promise that he had made. Then she said, My father, she replied, You have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you, of your enemies, the Ammonites, right? Powerful that she could just say that. But, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. Now, let me just say this at this particular point. 
There are different theories around this. There are some people who believe that he ended up following through and sacrificing his daughter as a burnt offering. But this wouldn't have been a practice of the, of, of the children of God at the time, right? So many scholars actually believe that for her, that commitment was basically a, a commitment following through from her father's vow, a commitment to never get married, okay? That she would just live uh, a celibate life, as it were, and will never get married. Verse 38 says, You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition uh, that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Okay, and he continued to be judge, right? I think it was for about another six years or so. And so many believe that he, if he had killed his own daughter in that manner, he wouldn't have continued to be uh, judge in that particular way. All right. So many scholars believe that she was not sacrificed like other nations did. Okay. Rather, her devotion was such that she would never get married. And this account, for me, demonstrates the seriousness with which people took vows. Now, a covenant, a covenant is a solemn agreement between two parties. And God is faithful to keep his covenants. And I believe that covenants are very powerful in the context of starting a business, for example, or starting ministries. And there are times when God will lead his children into making very powerful covenants with him. I was blessed, for example, with the free printing of my first book in 2005 by someone who wanted to actually honor me for what my dad had done for him in his career. My dad had promoted him and been very instrumental in his career. And many years later, he just said, you know what, Paul, I've got this printing business and for your first book, when you do your first book, I will print it free of charge for you. And he printed, I think it was about a thousand copies free of charge, right? That's what actually motivates me to do my first book. Oh, free printing, right? And I made a commitment. I made a vow that I would also give away the proceeds from those first books as a type of first fruit offering, right? That was a commitment I made. And one of the areas I've become most productive in is is in the development of books, etc. Now, what's interesting for me is there was a first fruit, first fruit commitment I made to the Lord. That was a type of vow. And, and literally I said, the proceeds, whatever I got from the book sales of those first thousand copies, right? They would, they, I would not take for myself. I would give away as an offering. I don't think it's by accident that that's now one of my areas of greatest fruit, okay? Um, so here's a good example of a vow that Jacob made. Jacob, as he was going into Mesopotamia, right, he vowed one-tenth of his estate. Very often vows, when we make them, it's about a commitment to give, right? One-tenth of his estate. And he promised to offer it at Bethel to the honor of God. And that's why I say to you very often when you're fulfilling your vow, it's an act of worship, isn't it? Don't make vows in the context of fear. Don't make them hastily, right? Genesis 28, 20 to 22. Then Jacob made a vow saying, and that's what prayer is, isn't it? You're talking to God, but this is a prayer of vows. Saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey that I'm taking and will give me food to eat, and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. And so as he ended up giving God a tenth of all that God gave him, that was an act of worship. You see, the prayer of vows needs to be taken very seriously. In Deuteronomy 23, 21 to 23, it says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not be slow to pay it, for the Lord your God will certainly demand it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from making a vow, you will not be guilty. Okay? If you don't make the vow in the first place. Whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. 
So a vow is something that's verbalized. And we see that it's verbalized because it says, whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do. Because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. Okay, no one forced you to make that vow. I've been in situations, I remember in the past, uh, it, was in a, it was in around 2015 or so, I made a vow and I said, this is how much time I'm going to spend uh, with the Lord, right? Now, for me, it was a vow. For other people, for some of you maybe right now, you just, you're growing in this and you basically saying, Let's me, let me try it out, extended hours. Let me do it. And you're not making it as a vow. So if you don't necessarily follow through, it's not like there's this judgment on you and so on. But I remember when I made it, I made it as a promise to God. I made it as a vow in terms of extended hours. And I still remember at a certain point now in 2016, I just got lax. I didn't pray to God saying, Lord, can you release me from this vow? I just got lax. And literally a few days afterwards, we got burgled. We got burgled. The only time only time we we married for almost 20 years now only time we've ever been burgled and it happened all right and i just had this conviction that you know what could it be that i broke my vow to the lord now please don't get me wrong here i believe god is a merciful god but i know the commitment i had made at that time to the lord all right and i know that i made it as a vow right and I didn't pray a prayer of repentance afterwards to actually say, Lord, release me from this vow. I'm now going to, you know, um, uh, make a different type of commitment to you. I just got lazy, got relaxed, made some kind of excuse. And literally a couple of days later, I believe there was a breach. I believe there was something that a door was open. Right. So be careful. You don't have to always make vows, but there's a blessing when you fulfill the vow. I've seen that in my life. When you make a promise to God and you fulfill it, there's a blessing in terms of that. Okay. Verse 23, whatever your lips utter, you must be sure to do because you made your vow freely to the Lord your God with your own mouth. So it's better to not make a vow than to make one and then break it. And that's why I believe that there's certain people who shouldn't get married, right? There's certain people who've got uh, polygamy in their loins, very strong in their loins, and it's not out of their system. You know what I'm talking about, right? And they've got a wandering eye, and next moment they're like, ha, this is the girl I want to marry, and they make a vow, and then they break that vow a few months later. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, you should have been delivered first from, from lust, from fornication, from uh, promiscuity, delivered first, and then make a commitment, Right? instead of uh, making a vow that you know you are very likely to break because there's judgment on you, all right? I know people don't like to use the language, this type of language, but I'm telling you right now, when you make a vow and you break it, it's so important to go before God and repent, bitterly repent, because he takes vows very seriously. Now, the prayer of vows needs to be verbalized, all right? And I showed you that. In Numbers 30, verse 2, it says, When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. So don't make vows out of comp competitiveness. Oh, they're doing this. Lord, I promise to do this. Okay. The prayer of vows, like I've been saying, results in worship as you fulfill the vow. You know, Tom Wright states, a vow is a specific kind of oath in which the person making the vow solemnly swears to pay something to God in return for God's favor or blessing in a certain matter. In the law of Moses, there's a very strong connection between vows and votive offerings, right? A votive offering was a special form of the peace offerings. And you see this in Leviticus 7 verse 16. It's an offering made in fulfillment of a vow, right? Powerful. In the book of Psalms 22 verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. You can see it was an act of worship. Psalm 66 verse 13, I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfill my vows to you. You're doing it joyfully. Psalm 76 verse 11, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. So can you see, he's encouraging us to make vows, but to fulfill them, right? 
Let all the neighboring lands bring gifts to the one to be feared. You can see from these portions of scripture how the psalmist anticipated fulfilling his vows as an act of worship. There's something precious about fulfilling your vows. You know, it blesses God's heart as an act of worship. It's, God's, it's in God's nature, right, to fulfill his promises. So when we do the same thing, when we fulfill our promises, there's an element of identification with his nature. The prayer of vows is so powerful because God is honored when we fulfill those vows. Now, if you've made vows in immaturity, like I mentioned earlier on, or in foolishness, there's also God's grace. But remember, the release from vows needs to be carried out in the spirit of repentance, in the spirit of repentance. And if you look in Leviticus 27, it deals with redeeming or taking back your vow. And I gave you the example of King Saul making a foolish vow to God, which involved executing his son, okay, his son Jonathan. And you see that in 1 Samuel chapter 14, 24 to 46, right? The people would not allow Saul to carry out his promise. And it seems clear that it wasn't God's will for Saul to carry out such a foolish vow that he had made rashly. And we know that King Saul made a few um, rash decisions, right? Right. This is especially true when you're carrying out a vow that involves doing something outside of God's laws and God's purpose. And we see this even in the New Testament where people had vowed you know, to execute this person and do this to Paul and do this to this person. Right? Um, that's not a godly vow. I'm trusting that this has been understood, this area of vows, because some people can take it to extremes. But I believe that it's worth teaching on because the promises of blessings that go with making a vow that you end up fulfilling. But do not do so rashly. Be very cautious about certain vows, but they can really, really help you in terms of maintaining certain standards and following through on certain commitments that help you in your walk with the Lord. But remember, God is a gracious God. God is a forgiving God. And um, take that uh, into context, into the context of praying the prayer of vows. The sixth uncommon prayer that I want to look at is meditative prayer. Meditative prayer. And I said to you earlier on that meditation in and of itself is not prayer. But prayers that stem from a meditative heart are very powerful. When I was growing up, that was one of the things I would long for. I would just long for times where I would just get a, an orange, make a little hole in it, and just go into the sun somewhere and sit around the side of our house, and I would just spend time meditating. Now, what is biblical meditation, and how is it different to Eastern meditation? I like to make this distinction so that people don't go the wrong way. Eastern meditation is practiced in order to empty the mind which is a very dangerous thing. When you empty your mind, you're creating a vacuum and it actually opens the door for the demonic. So be very careful, you know, when people go to some of these yoga retreats and things like that, uh, and depending on who's guiding them in that whole process, sometimes if it's Eastern meditation, and I'm not saying it happens all the time, but with Eastern meditation, you're guided into a place of emptying your mind, and then you can open yourself up to demonic activity. So be very careful where you go, even when people go to uh, hypnotists and people like that. Okay, so Eastern meditation is practiced in order to empty the mind. But biblical meditation involves, it literally means to utter and to mutter. And it involves uttering and muttering the attributes of God and the deeds of God, right? With the goal of fill, filling up the believer's spirit and soul with the life-giving word of God. So you're uttering and muttering the word of God. You're uttering and muttering his attributes, his nature, his deeds, Okay, so there's something vocal about biblical meditation. It's not just about thinking. It's actually about speaking, right? And when you're in that posture of meditation, right, the prayers that come from a place of a meditative heart that is focused on God and God honoring, whew, those prayers are very powerful. 
They're very powerful. And here's the problem with many Christians. Many Christians spend their whole day meditating on the wrong stuff, ruminating on the wrong stuff, right? On wickedness. And then they suddenly start to pray. But those prayers aren't powerful because they're not coming from a heart filled with the word of God. And you can, you can actually tell, can't you, when someone is praying, but they're not filled with the word of God. And when someone else is praying and is coming from a meditative heart. You see, God actually observes us. And he notes, he takes note that many people meditate on wicked things, then suddenly try to pray. Not going to be powerful prayers. In the book of Psalms 63 verse 6, the psalmist says, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Key question, what are you pondering on? What, are, what do you think about through the watches of the night? Right? And remember, these guys would pray in watches. So he was mixing meditation with prayer. I want to encourage you, locate yourself in scripture and then meditate on it. Find life verses in scripture, life verses for you, and then get the most out of them. Right? Uh, one of the things my wife does very powerfully is sometimes she'll give someone a prophetic word and she'll say, I believe Psalm 37 is for you and you can mine it. You can get as much as you want out of it. What's that? That's meditate on that particular psalm and literally get as much as you want out of it. Okay. You don't get much out of a scripture if you just skim read it. You don't get much out of a scripture if you just think about it. But when you read it and study it and speak it and then you pray strong prayers stemming from a meditative heart. Oh, extremely powerful, extremely powerful. Right? Don't try to speed read through the Bible just so you can say to people, I've read the Bible, I've read the Bible. No, his word is alive and active. And as you utter and mutter it, it's amazing what happens to your spirit man. Okay, I'm going to teach a message still in this series at some point on how to strengthen and build up the human spirit, how to strengthen and build up and edify your inner person. Because a lot of Christians are weak spirited, right? Their spirit is reborn right? Has been regenerated, but it's weak. It's anemic. Okay. Genesis 24 verse 63, right? It says here, he went out to the field. This is Isaac. He went out to the field one evening to meditate. And as he looked up, he saw camels approaching. So meditation is actually something that you do intentionally, just like Isaac did. You set aside time for it. I remember my friend, uh, Pastor Chooks, saying to me, he saw the light in, I don't know if it was in one of my, my studies or somewhere, and he says, oh, this is nice and dim. This is good for meditation, right? And I know that for me, that I'm sensitive to light sometimes in terms of, you know what, I, I want to pray now, but I don't want the light too bright. I want to reflect now. I'm not going to be taking a whole lot of notes and doing all sorts of things, so I don't need a lot of light. I want to dim. It's nice to meditate, right? So, if you're sensitive to uh, your cl the climate around you, just think of what's the best place for me to be. I sometimes love um, meditating when I'm outside, just sitting somewhere, and the temperature has to be just right. Otherwise, if it's not right, it's a distraction. Okay, you're always like wondering, oh, I need to get this. Oh, I now need some water. I need this. I need that. Oh, I'm too hot. Let me take off this jersey. Let me do this. The dogs are now barking and so on. Go to a place where you know you'll be able to attend matter the word of God, to ponder on it. That's the birthplace of revelation. That's the birthplace of powerful prayers, right? So meditation is, is something you actually can do intentionally, right? Where you just make that decision intentionally. You know, when you study these scriptures that I'm about to share with you on biblical meditation, you see the impact it has on the prayers we pray. In Isaiah 26 verse 3, it says, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. I want to pray prayers that come from a heart full of peace, not from a place of anxiety. Right? In Joshua 1 verse 8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Interesting. Always on your lips. In other words, speak the book of the law. Speak the word of God. Declare it like affirmations. Right? says, meditate on it day and night so that you will be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous 
and successful. The reason why a lot of Christians don't obey the word is because they don't speak the word. They don't have the word on their lips, right? In the book of Psalms, chapter 1, verse 1 to 2, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. So if you're not actively meditating on God's word, you'll be engaged in the counterfeit. What's the counterfeit? Sitting with mockers or walking in step with the wicked. That's the counterfeit. So meditating is a place of protection. In the book of Psalms 19 verse 14, it says, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, your prayers will not be pleasing to the Lord if the meditation of your heart is not. This is so important. Powerful prayers, prayers that are pleasing to God come from meditation that is pleasing to God. May the words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Don't think that you can have wicked meditation of your heart and suddenly your prayers are pleasing to the Lord. No, that's just lip service. Your prayers will not be pleasing to the Lord if the meditation of your heart is not. The book of Psalms 49 verse 3. My mouth will speak words of wisdom. The meditation of my heart will give you understanding. Psalms 104 verse 34. May my meditation be pleasing to him as I rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 119, and that's the long psalm that speaks of God's word. I'm going to read verse 15, verse 78, verse 97 to 99, and verse 148. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Verse 78, may the arrogant be put to shame for wronging me without cause. But what will I do? I will meditate on your precepts. 97 to 99, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I was coaching someone earlier on today and they said to me, but Paul, what's the key to your inspiration? How come you can just pull out this stuff and you just have this knowledge that just comes and just you just know it and it just flows. I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. Some people say, how come you remember all this stuff? I have more insight than all my teachers for I meditate on your statutes. My eyes stay open, verse 148. My eyes stay open through the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. Are you staying up in order to meditate on his promises? Now, what type of prayers come from a meditative heart? Just think about it. What type of prayers come from a heart that's basically saying, I may I'm staying up in the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promises. What are you meditating on? Many people pray soulish prayers because their hearts have not meditated on the word of God. In Psalms 143 verse 5, it says, I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and I consider what your hands have done. Now, what would happen if I'm just meditating on all of God's good works? I'm going to start praying audacious prayers because I'm remembering all his good works. I'm remembering his mighty deeds. In the book of Psalms 77, 10 to 12, it says, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. If I'm constantly thinking of his mighty deeds from long ago, guess what? I'll be expectant that he will do those mighty deeds right now. What level of faith does this type of meditation produce? Think about it. What type of prayers do you pray when you have just been reflecting on how wonderful God's works are? 
And I love Philippians 4 verse 8, like I know many of you do. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Meditate on such things. What would happen to your life if that's all you thought of? If you literally make a commitment to the Lord that, Lord, you know what? I've got the mind of Christ. Lord, I, when I gave you my life, I gave you my body. I didn't just give you my, my spirit. I also gave you my body. I also gave you my soul, which is my mind, my will, my emotions, my intellect, my imagination. Let God have your mind. Let God have your intellect. Let God have your imagination, the imaginations of your heart. Do you know why? The Bible says he will give you more than you can ever ask for or imagine. I want my imagination to be sanctified. And you know how you do that? One of the key things you do is learn to meditate biblically. Learn to fix your mind on whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things nothing else. What has mind share for you? What do you dwell on most of the time? If you apply Philippians 4, 8 to your life, I'm telling you now, your prayers will just go to another level. And so let's pray. Father, may you lead us as we pray the prayer of vows. May we experience, Lord, your grace to help us in fulfilling such vows. Father, may you help us to always pray from hearts that have been meditating continuously on your goodness and on your greatness. Come and have your way in our midst, we pray. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. I want to encourage you now, pray for each other. Reflect on these things that I've shared with you and allow God to lead you in the prayer of vows. Are there any commitments that you've been afraid of making that you need to actually make? right? Promises to God, like, Lord, this is my promise to you. It's amazing what happens and how it blesses his heart when you fulfill those particular vows. What have you been dwelling on? What have you been meditating on? What have you been uttering and muttering? Do you need to repent right now concerning some of these things? I want to encourage you, those of you in our Joburg church, um, you will have a time of prayer now around these things or a time of worship around these things as you make these commitments. Those of you in our Centurion Church, you've got Pastor Stuart who's going to come up now and just begin to minister to you and lead you in a time of prayer. Sometimes it's a time of repentance. Other times it's a time of commitment and consecration around these particular things that we're talking about. Those of you online, I trust that God has blessed you and has ministered to you. And I encourage you to go to your next level in terms of the prayer vows and to go to your next level in terms of meditative prayer. For some of you, you need to repent because you're in a place in your life where you've actually been practicing Eastern meditation, which has opened doors in your life to the demonic. Stop it, repent of it, and start practicing biblical meditation, not the counterfeits. God bless you, we love you, and I'm looking forward to Next week, where I'll be with our churches in person and I'll be talking about how to overcome immaturity in prayer. God bless you.